Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. So, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Uh, I'm Hugo Gurdon, Editorial Director of the Washington Examiner, and I'm delighted that you could all be here uh, in this wonderful facility at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank the Heritage Foundation uh, very much for letting us hold this event here. Uh, we have a great event for you this morning. Um, I also want to thank the Alliance for American Manufacturing and for the Taiwan, and to the Taiwan civil government for making this event possible. Um, they've been great partners, and uh, we're delighted to uh, work with them. Uh, the Commerce Secretary was instructed very at the last hour to uh, clear his schedule and go to a meeting somewhere. I don't know who has the power to instruct him in that way. Um, but uh, he sends his regrets, and um, I will we'll be following up and making sure that um, whoever instructed him to be somewhere else uh, knows our disappointment. <laughs> but we have still a fantastic uh, uh, event for you this morning, and um, uh, with uh, Senator Ben Sass, who is on the Trade Subcommittee, and later on uh, Senator Joe Manchin on the Energy Committee, who's deeply involved in uh, discussions about trade. And with uh, TPP, NAFTA, both live issues, and what the administration itself even sometimes referred to as the trade war with China having an armistice at the moment. There's an enormous amount to discuss. So I'm not going to uh, take any more of your time. I just want to thank you for being here. I want to thank Senator Sass for being here. And he's going to be uh, having a discussion with Tim Carney, the commentary editor for the Washington Examiner, who is one of our in-house experts on trade. So please give them a warm, warm welcome and thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Thank you all for coming. I'm Tim Carney, commentary editor at the Washington Examiner. I, as a commentary editor and opinion guy, I love debates. The funny thing about trade is for years, there wasn't that much of a debate on it. Of all the issues there were, economists generally agreed free and open trade benefits all nations involved in it. Uh, you had agreement in the leadership of both parties in effect, in favor of generally more open, more robust international trade. So you had agreement across the media and political elites on this issue, yada, yada, yada. That's how we got Donald Trump, in effect. That you had one guy who stood out from the consensus, and I think that's a big part of why he won, and we're seeing some of the interesting effects these days. So I'm glad to bring here Senator Ben Sass, who is one of the more outspoken uh, senators on trade. He and I have in common, we were at the uh, St. John's College together at the same time. 
I knew he looked slightly familiar. I think we played pickup basketball against one another. Which is why neither of us can get honest work now. Exactly. St. John's, St. John's is one of those books where you, <clears throat> schools where you just read great books instead of going to a real college. I will not ask you the first question that I should ask a St. John's graduate, which is, what is virtue and can it be taught? Instead, I will say... We're going to do that during the former Wilbur Ross panel. Yes. Um, I just want you to tell me uh, what you think is the most important thing that people in Washington sometimes get wrong about trade. Um, that trade is almost always overwhelmingly a win-win. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, trade deals are not two countries, or, or the effects after a trade deal are not about two countries. They're about lots of individuals and individual firms inside those two countries that are voluntarily doing stuff. They wouldn't do it unless both sides were winning. So there, there's sort of a broad public sentiment now, and I appreciate your setup for this, that we used to have a long consensus in this country in favor of free trade, and now it's been eroded really rapidly. Um, I live in probably the most export-dependent state per capita in the union. And I don't poll this, um, but I've seen some recent polling. And when I was running for office four years ago, Nebraska was roughly a 70-30 pro-free trade state. I've seen some data recently which and would suggest... And that's mostly agriculture. We, we, I'm a historian, so usually my job is to speak against hyperbole. A historian's job is to be boring at a, at a party. And whenever anybody says there's been lots and lots of change, usually our job is to say, actually, it's almost all continuity. There's just a <laughs> tiny little bit of change. Um, there's always a tiny little bit of change and a lot of continuity. You just think this is the most extraordinary moment in human history because humans are narcissists and you're here. But really, reality hasn't changed that much. Usually that's the historian's job. I'll say something historically hyperbolic. Um, I think we live on, Nebraskans live on, the most productive land in the history of the world. <clears throat> most productive time in the history of agriculture, and the most productive place. And we grow more food than we could conceivably consume. <clears throat> so we need export markets to be able to sell all our food or our state collapses. And that's not just farmers and ranchers. That's welders and truckers and everybody downstream in the economy. So we need export trade markets. And yet in my state, I've seen data recently which would suggest that we've gone from 70-30 pro-trade to maybe 60-40 anti-trade. And when you talk to people and you ask why... <clears throat> Why the newfound skepticism of trade? And it's because I think we've adopted publicly a big, broad view that trade is a zero-sum game. And so when you have more trade, the assumption is consumers win, but producers probably lose. And so you get cheaper flat-screen TVs, but you have fewer jobs. That's just not borne out by the data about what actually happens historically. Trade is a win-win on net for almost every, consumers obviously indisputably win in both countries, but almost every particular trading relationship has producers winning on net as well. Now, there's a lot we have to talk about that's complicated about the differences between subsectors of production where there are more winners and losers. Well, I, and again, I think all the economic data bears out that freer trade helps the nation as a whole. Um, but as you know, the, the nation is not one economy. It, it's many economies, and there's lots of economic data suggesting that there are, that <coughs> local pockets suffer deep and lasting harm. So what's good for the farmers of Nebraska might not be good for the former uh, steel workers of uh, you know southwestern Pennsylvania or these other pockets of the country. So 
is trade redistributing wealth from West Virginia to Nebraska? Or, and what could you do? What is your answer to people who are in these industrial towns that seem to have lost out their manufacturing jobs to free trade? Yeah, great question. So first of all, I want to agree with the premise. So theoretically, it is absolutely the case that you could have redistribution among different productive se sectors. But that's really not what's happened over the last few decades. Almost all of our trading relationships have produced net jobs as well. But we, we definitely have this image in our mind of a Rust Belt town where there's been lots and lots of loss over the last few decades. There's a hollowing out of community, and there's a disruption in the nature, durable, long-term nature of work. That's a big problem that this town should be tackling and isn't. But first, we have to be sure we're properly identifying the real problem. If you have in your mind a picture of a closed-up factory in Youngstown, and there's a new factory that has the same brand name of a company in Mexico, most Americans look at that problem, and I think the president looks at that problem, and says, ah, there used to be a factory in Youngstown, and now there's a factory with that brand name in Mexico. See, trade caused this problem. The real issue is not the fact that the factory was in Youngstown and now is in Mexico. It's that, and by problem here, I want to say the problem that is causing a lot of this disruption to local community. The real problem is the factory used to have 38,000 employees, and today it has 800 employees. We should definitely have a debate about the regulatory environment and maybe pieces of the trade policy that led the new factory to be in Mexico, not Youngstown. But first, just acknowledge that if the same high-tech factory were in Youngstown today, employing 800 instead of 38,000, we still have most of the same problem we need to debate. And I think here it's very important to have a historical understanding of what happens as labor, as technology substitutes for labor in every sector as it becomes more modern. So agriculture 150 years ago uh, to the present is a perfect picture of what's happened in big tool factory jobs over the last 50 years. I'll just give one hard fact on this. In 1900, 41% of the US labor market was involved in agricultural production. 1900, 41%. Today, well under 2%. We have more total output. Is that because of trade? No, that's because of technology. Humans have brains, and we get better over time at doing things more efficiently and more effectively. So we've gone from 41% of our workforce to less than two in ag, and we have more total output. Here's the parallel in industrialism. In the mid-1950s, the high-water mark of U.S. industrial employment in history, about 31% of the American labor market worked in factories. Today, it's what? It's about 7%, and we have more total output. That is, that is a function of technology overwhelmingly, not trade. And we should absolutely be thinking about what it looks like to live in a society where we don't have lifelong work anymore. But most of that problem is not about trade. Well, uh, I don't know if you've seen the studies by MIT economist David Autor. And he, I mean, while technology is a driving factor, he has said that specifically local economies that are competing with China once after China entered the WTO, local economies in the U.S. that are competing with China saw dramatic negative effects, and not just the loss of manufacturing jobs, but increased criminality, uh, decreased marriage, increased out-of-wedlock birth. And his uh, economic studies have fairly robustly tried to establish that, yeah, it is that if you were competing with China, you did work. So it's not just robots doing right. these jobs. It's a trade. So I guess my question would be, if the government, if the U.S. government is advancing, uh, is advancing trade through trade deals, 
does it have any responsibility, does it have any capability to help these places that are suffering from trade? Yeah, I, I think, so first of all, really good uh, data that you're pointing to. Uh, a number of folks, but him in particular at MIT, have done really good work on this. And I think the hollowing out of local community, and particularly when you have one primary employer, and then that primary employer ends up in competition with China, there are a bunch of consequences of that. And I do think, even though I'm, I'm both a limited government and a small government guy, I do think the federal government has a responsibility to have rational uh, trade mitigation policies. And one of the downstream effects of how dysfunctional D.C. is, is that we have programs that are called trade adjustment assistance. We have trade mitigation policies. And nobody would credibly go out and say, these are well-thought-out programs that work well. They end up becoming a slush fund for politicians. And so I think we definitely need to think about what the repositioning of communities are. And, and again, tying it back to technology and the digital revolution we're going through, though there are particular communities that are primarily responsive uh, to Chinese competition. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, is that we need to know, we need to have a shared understanding that 40 and 45 and 50 and 55-year-olds are now going to be disrupted out of jobs forevermore. That is inevitable. Uh, that is not a policy choice. That's economic reality. And so we need to know what it looks like to have job retraining for mid-career folks. And right now, we don't have any credible uh, programs in this space. There, there are 120 of them, and I think some of the GAO studies say three or four of them might not be terrible. Uh, but none, none of these programs really work, and there's inertia in D.C. around already extant programs instead of actually thinking what's the policy objective and then what's the means to that end. So to take one more step from the theoretical towards the specific, um, the current uh, the current and recent trade uh, discussions with China that the administration has been engaging in have, well, first, the, the general question about it. If a foreign country is subsidizing their industries, and we know that China has many state-owned industries, has massive uh, export subsidies, and uh, has these five-year, ten-year plans where they have a planned economy, does that... Uh, weaken the argument for free trade in our regard. In other words, people say, well, we could compete against Chinese companies, but not when they're effectively backed by the whole government. So that's why we need to put tariffs on those goods. What's your response to that argument? Uh, the main thing it does is it strengthens the argument for bigger trading blocks of people who believe in free trade and transparency and the rule of law and an open seas. So if, since China is a bad actor, and here your, your opening question I think was about what's, what are the things that we most misunderstand about trade, and I guess my, my headline on that has to be that trade is usually a win-win, uh, not a zero-sum game. But a close second would be what is a trade product deficit? Because people throw it around here as if it's inevitably a terrible thing without talking about trade services surplus and foreign direct investment that usually offset the same equation. So there's a big difference between our bilateral trade product deficit over years with Mexico and our trade deficit with China. The, the trade product deficit with Mexico is overwhelmingly not a problem. It's been a win-win for the U.S. and Mexico for about 45 consecutive years. With China... There's a whole bunch of things that our trade deficit does reveal about broader Chinese bad practices. But the most important thing, even though the trade deficit with China does matter, the most important problems with China are the Made in China 2025 initiative and their IP theft. The real problems with China are much bigger 
than just our trade deficit. And right now, I don't think the administration, and I wish Secretary Ross were going to be here because I would have loved to have, have heard his comments on this. I think right now the administration hasn't been very clear about what its actual objectives are with China. But if what you care about are the biggest problems that are harming Americans, the, the trade deficit, yes, but more fundamentally their plan to dominate a whole bunch of tech sectors over time, the single best thing we could do to push back on Chinese bad behavior, and there's lots of it, would be to be leading TPP. If the U.S. were leading a whole bunch of other nations in the Pacific that believed in the rule of law, believed in free markets, believed in transparency, believed in, in human rights, believed in open sea lanes, that's the single worst thing that could happen to China vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. A bilateral uh, strategy without clear goals that just always has the, the risk of either intentionally or accidentally drifting into a trade war, that doesn't help us. That doesn't solve these problems. Do you uh, think that the agreement that seems to have come out of these China talks is a positive one? I mean, for instance, there's uh, the administration says that China's agreed to buy a lot more American-grown crops, and so that's the administration's focus on the trade deficit, uh, especially the trade deficit vis-a-vis -vis China, shrinking that. Is that something you see as a positive, or just generally your reactions to how things seem to be turning out with China now? Yeah, I, I mean to say this humbly because obviously you're a, you know, an esteemed member of the media, and I look around the room and I see lots of members of the media here, so I don't want to beat up on any headline writers, but frankly, um, I, I've read lots of stories the last three or four days about the trade deal and about the particulars of how the U.S. won, I've yet to find a story that actually has any substantive, substantive facts underneath it to explain what the deal is. Mm -hmm. So if the headlines are right about this China deal, I'm ready to pop cam uh, champagne corks as well, but I've actually not seen any substantive deal, uh, details about this alleged deal. It looks to me like uh, we're losing the trade negotiation with China, uh, but the administration has done a masterful job of spending a lot of reporters to say the administration says they just won a China trade negotiation, and so that became a temporary headline. Uh, living in a place where our farmers and ranchers need to export to feed the world, I had a bunch of them in my office all morning yesterday, uh, and none of them are very excited about the current status of trade negotiations with China. They're glad that there's a diminution in the risk of what looks like a precipitous trade war, um, but that looks mostly like the administration is walk, walking back from its opening bellicose rhetoric, um, not because much mm -hmm. has actually happened. So then uh, China is not our only trading partner, obviously. Uh, the Trump administration has uh, said, you know, we need to, that NAFTA was a bad deal. So I guess my first question to you is, do you think NAFTA was a good deal? And then the follow-up is, what would you look to do in a renegotiation of NAFTA? Yeah, so first of all, NAFTA was a great deal uh, for the U.S., and for Mexico, and for Canada. The idea that NAFTA was a bad deal is just not borne out by any actual data. And so that's one of the really discouraging things about the way the NAFTA negotiations have gone, is it starts with the premise that somehow to quote some senior administration officials, the U.S. got screwed in NAFTA. Uh, recently, uh, somebody at the top of the executive branch used the phrase that NAFTA is the single worst deal in the history of the world, <laughs> either political or economic. Um, that's just nuts, right? I mean, at the end of the day, NAFTA has been unbelievably good for the U.S. and for Mexico and for Canada. And the problem is there, there's a senior uh, White House official who whispers in the president's ear and says on a regular basis, NAFTA's been really good for Mexico. And the assumption you're supposed to take away from that is somehow the U.S. must have gotten screwed. But trade deals and real estate deals are not the same. Real estate deals are to a certain degree zero-sum. 
ultimately, if I want to be a buyer or I want to be a seller and my counterparty wants to be a buyer or a seller, um, once we move toward the table to fi- negotiate final terms, it does become zero sum because there's a point at which the negotiation uh, of the deal won't happen. And just prior to that, there's still another dollar where it would and $2 shy and $3 shy. And so if you walk away from a real estate deal and your counterparty's really, really excited with the deal they got, then you did get screwed a little bit. You negotiated a little bit of a bad deal. You still voluntarily entered into this agreement, so you must think it's still a win for you. But you got less than you might have gotten. Trade is not like that. Trade is win-win. Voluntary parties are agreeing to make exchanges. And when lots of people do that on both sides, you have more and more trade. So it's a win-win. On NAFTA, the deal's two decades old. There are lots of things that need to be modernized. There's a chapter not an entire chapter, but there's a big chunk of the original NAFTA deal that's about the cassette tape player in your car. How many, show of hands quick, how many people have a cassette tape player in your car? I do too. Thank you for driving a, driving a 20-year-old Silverado with 297,000 miles, just like I do. Um, turns out you can get a little string that goes into your cassette player and you can actually run a CD off of it on the center console. Um, still two generations of tech back. But <clears throat> so there's cassette tape player terms in your NAFTA deal. That's not needed. You know what's not at all in NAFTA? Anything about backup cameras. Every car now has a backup camera. So there's a lot of modernization that's needed in NAFTA, but not because we're losing. There are particular, particular anti-competitive behaviors uh, that should be targeted in a new NAFTA deal. The Canadian defense of their dairy industry is really inequitable, and we should try to make some changes in that. And there are particulars that need to be negotiated. But the opening premise that NAFTA has been bad isn't true. It's been great for U.S. consumers, and it's been very good for U.S. job creation on the whole. Do you think the Republican Party is still a free trade party? I don't know what the Republican Party is right now in general, and that's not a specific attack on anything of the last 15 or 18 months. I mean, much more generally, we are going through a massive revolution in America. I really do believe 500 years from now, we will look back at this moment, and nobody, we won't, uh, (laughs) but people will look back at this moment, and no one will talk about political polarization or what Hollywood tweet went viral the fastest. (laughs) The headline on our moment is that the digital revolution is undermining long-term jobs. We still think of jobs in our head as nouns, and jobs are going to become verbs. McKinsey has a study that suggests that half of the U.S. labor market will be freelancers within three years. Think of that. Sort of an uberization of the production side of the economy. Half of people will be freelance. By 2030, 55% of today's global economic tasks, not hold jobs, but 55% of global economic tasks will be disrupted by already extant AI technologies. This is not new AI that'll come online. This is current available, currently available AI being broadly disseminated. We're going through a digital revolution that is undermining place. There's a halving of friendship in America in the last 25 years. The nuclear family is in collapse. 59% of babies born to women under age 30 have no connection to dad now. And we have massive hollowing out of local community, of workplace, of neighborhood, of family, of friendship. And so these two political parties should be competing to explain what America should look like in 10 years and what the, the downstream subset of that that's amenable to policy solutions. Most of what's happening is so much bigger than federal policy, but these parties should outline a vision of where the country is headed, and neither of them are doing that. They're both living sort of a, a retro uh, nostalgia game that's mostly about sort of rage-based politics. 
politics. And so being, going from being a pro-free trade party to being a apparently anti-free trade party is not because anybody thinks that's the right constructive play for the future, because it's the right way to capture a whole bunch of angst in the short term. So I, I can't speak to the Republican Party on trade, because I think much more broadly, it's hard to articulate any clear Republican vision. But when, when you talk about the angst or the rage or the nostalgia, it, I mean, nostalgia seems like a, a fine thing if it used to be more likely that you were born to a married couple. If yep. it used to be more likely that a guy with just a high school degree could get a good job, make a good living, raise a family, and eventually even get a fishing boat. And as and it's not just material, as you're pointing out, that the communities are eroding and collapsing. And if we combine that sort of conservative insight that heck, you know, 1959 um, had a lot of good things going for it. And then you combine the, the, the studies, especially from David Autor at M- MIT, and you say these communities were seem to have been eroded in part by their exposure to China trade. Then can you make a conservative, socially conservative argument, even if opening up us to trade is good for the economy, it might not be good on net that the economic costs of protectionism might be worth it if it's protecting nuclear families, communities, Little League, and all that stuff. So great, great framing of the question. <clears throat> and I'm not being combative with you, but I wish the Secretary were here so we could have this, this debate together. Is it the administration's prote- position that protectionism is going to bring those things back? Obviously not. Right. If you could, yeah. I'd love to have that debate because there's a strong argument for it. If protectionism could bring back neighborhoods and nuclear families and lifelong employment, it'd be well worth discussing. It, it, it'd be, a lot of people would reasonably embrace that against some of the benefits of free trade. But the problem is none of that's going to happen. What's, it, it's, it is fundamentally cruel to lie to people and say, by government policy, we're going to make your community stable again. We're going to restore Tocquevillian thickness where you're from by government policy. It isn't true. Hunter-gatherers and farmers, not farmers where I live, the most productive producers in the history of the world, but I mean from the agricultural revolution 11,000 years ago until about 150 years ago when you still needed lots and lots of labor inputs to farm, Hunter-gatherers and farmers didn't have job choice. They just had becoming 8 or 10 or 12 or 14 years old and doing more of what mom and dad and grandma and grandpa had always done, right? Job choice is a function of industrialization and urbanization. It's only a century and a half old, and lots of good things came with industrialization despite the fact that there was a whole bunch of disruption when it first came about. Eventually, social capital was restored in urban ethnic neighborhoods that mirrored a lot of what social capital had looked like in agrarianism, in in rural communities like where I'm from or the quintessential New England. And, uh, town green. But once you had that social capital, there was an assumption in, in cities. There was an assumption that an 18-year-old kid could graduate high school and get a job at the factory, and he was going to have that job until death or retirement, and you were going to be able to have an upper-middle-class life with that noun of, I'm a machinist, or I'm a trucker, or I'm an X, or I'm a Y. That is simply not what's going to happen. What's going to, it's May, so we got lots of high schools and colleges walking commencement this week and next week. Um, the average college graduate in America right now is not, this month, is not just going to change jobs, but they're going to change industries three times in the first decade after they leave college. 
If they're not prepared to be a lifelong learner who can mitigate those moments of disruption when technology comes and decimates, again, not just their job and their firm, but their whole industry, they're not going to make it in life. And so what we need to be able to do is help people understand that the future is going to require a much more resilient sense of not just individual responsibility, but more fundamentally communal connection. And we're going to need to see the restoration of local community. None of that stuff is actually going to come by protectionism. So, and I don't think you're suggesting that that connection will come by a government pol- a federal policy either. Agreed. Um, but so, but if trade is good to press this issue a little bit further, should government, should the federal government be promoting trade or should it simply be in the business of removing roadblocks to trade? So this is the argument for things like OPIC and the Export-Import Bank is trade and exports are good. This is something the White House agrees with. This is something half of all Republicans and almost all Democrats seem to agree with. Um, we have lots of subsidies for, um, for agriculture. We have subsidies for, for exports. Is that good if trade is good? Usually no, because it ends up being the federal government picking winners and losers. But like with trade in general, the government does have a responsibility to go fight for trading relationships. And again, the bigger the trading block, the better. So there can be a broader consensus as opposed to just tit for tat about where there's bad action on the other side. There may be cases where the U.S. needs to respond to specific bad action and export subsidy by other entities. But by and large, entities like the Export-Import Bank in the U.S and here I'm not trying to to give you too much credit, uh, but you're one of the people who's written well on this, I think, um, that there's a belief that if the U.S. government doesn't solve a problem, markets would never solve these problems. Well, during the time that the Export-Import Bank has been hamstrung for a time, it turns out private finance has started to come together and build a whole bunch of plans about how you would do uh, export financing, even in a world absent U.S. subsidization of that export financing. So by and large, what the U.S. government should be doing is ensuring that U.S. firms and U.S. U.S. families have a level playing field when they enter some of these foreign markets. The U.S. government should not be trying to pick winners and losers. So then um, we've talked about NAFTA and China looking in the other direction. Um, one of the things this administration has talked about in our, our editorial page has seemed, uh, that we generally liked is the idea of a bilateral trade deal with some European allies, specifically the U.K., and that, they're, um, that it doesn't have some of the downside of, a, of trade deals with the developing world and that we're not opening ourselves up to low-wage markets, but that we can pursue more of those. If this administration is averse to some of these bigger trade deals, NAFTA and TPP, couldn't it be fruitful to pursue multiple bilateral deals aimed at lowering barriers and subsidies? Yes. I don't know the whole rest of your agenda, but I see Dan Hannon in the front row, and I hereby nominate him to, uh, to <laughs> s- sit for a subsequent interview with you today on this topic. The U.S. should be prioritizing the biggest markets uh, where we could have bilateral. We should, we, yes, we should have a U.K.-specific trade deal now post-Brexit. Um, but in the Pacific, we should be leading TPP. But if the administration is opposed to a, a 12-sided uh, trade negotiation, we should be pushing fast and hard on a U.S. Japan deal now. Why do you think um, the public, why, why do you think the anti-trade uh, message resonated? You cited some sort of economic fallacies in the beginning that it's a, a zero-sum thing, um, but also the, the community things. What if, well, I guess I should ask this more forward-looking. Do you think it's possible, and how would you go about persuading 
Nebraskans, Republican voters, voters in general, of the virtues of trade. Yeah, well, I, first of all, let's have it be a subset of the bigger point, because you said those community yeah. things, but I know you, you care deeply about them. I mean, the things, uh, here's what's happening in our moment. Technology is telling us we can be free from time and space at the same time that all the happiness literature, so whether you come from a theological framework like I do or if you're uh, St. John's uh, Aristotelian, uh, it turns out that sociology is now telling us the exact same data that theology and philosophy have taught us for a really long time. The things that make people happy are ultimately about roots. The happiness literature suggests that the only four things that really drive human happiness, it's not how much money you make. What makes you happy is do you have a family? Do you have a couple of real friends? I mean, not Facebook friends, not, not Senate friends, my good friend from the state of Vermont right before you <laughs> rip, rip their throat out in a debate, right? But actual friends who when you're happy, they're happy. When you hurt, they hurt. Not because they choose to, but because they love you. They have an expansive sense of the self with you. Um, your work, one of the, statistically the biggest driver of human happiness is do I think I'm needed? On Monday morning when I leave home and go to work, do I think somebody needs what I do? Am I, do I matter? And do you have a theological or philosophical framework to make sense of death and suffering? The first three entirely and the third a little bit are all about place. Family is about embodied relationships. Friendship is about people that you actually share life with. Work is about the place where you work and the people you work with. And theology is primarily about or largely about um, the gathered community that worships together. All those things that drive happiness are about roots, and technology is screaming at us, you can be kings. You can transcend time and space. It's pretty great when you want to travel and go see something across the world that we, get, we can get there easily. There's a whole bunch of benefits to the fact that all of us have a supercomputer in our pocket right now. Um, I love that I could do Uber Eats last night when I worked late at the office. Right? There's a bunch about the latest app on my smartphone that I find really interesting and is actually eliminating a lot of the drudgery out of certain tasks in the world. That's great. But technology is not going to create community. Technology is mostly undermining community. And so the things that are really fundamental to this conversation are well up. Culture's upstream from economics, uh, and economics and, and culture are both well upstream from politics. And so none of these conversations can be had in a neat and orderly way if we start at the policy fights. We need to start with the bigger assumptions about what makes people happy. And it turns out one of the things that makes you happy is can you provide for your family and do you have meaningful work. Well, it turns out in a world that is flatter and flatter and flatter, Tom Friedman style, uh, we need more export markets for more of the job creators in the U.S. 10 years from now and 20 years from now. So free trade is the right answer as long as we know what questions we're asking. Free trade is not the source of hope or meaning. Great. I have one last question for you. Do you have policy proposals or will you soon have policy proposals either that advance free trade or that address uh, some of the problems that are uh, that, that, that can be caused in these local pockets by trade. So I don't have a specific trade mitigation uh, reboot policy, uh, but I'm definitely uh, not looking to m make any news here, so this is well, well in the future. But I, I don't think we're going to solve any of this without a big discussion about where our entitlement investments go. And right now they go the wrong places. 
We are not thinking about what is still the great civil rights issue of our day, which is the disaster of so much K-12 education in America. We are not thinking about what it looks like when higher education is going to be remade in the future and needs to be remade. And the good news is it's going to be remade by digital disruption, even if the federal government and incumbent interests are too slow on the uptake and not wanting it to happen. But we have in our I want to say, I guess what I'm, let me give you a headline first. I'm thinking about K-12, about higher education, about mid-career job retraining, and about how much of our entitlement benefits are now flowing to the earliest retiring population in the history of the world statistically. Right? What we're doing right now in spending almost all of the federal government's investment on young retirees is really, really dumb policy. I know that's politically dangerous and stupid to say, but I don't really care. Right. I don't, I don't think this is the most important job in the world. I came here to try to help solve some problems. And we live in a world where life expectancy is arcing toward the moon. That's great, great news. Right? When, when we set our retirement age at age 65, it was in the mid 1930s, and life expectancy was 62. We set our retirement age as an outlier pro, for, uh, an outlier for unusually long lived widows. Life expectancy was 59 for men, 64 for women. We set the retirement age at 65 for widows who outlived their husband by more than six years instead of the normal five. Our life expectancy in this room now is 81, and there are a bunch of people in Silicon Valley making big bets right now that sometime soon, they debate whether or not it's 10 years or 50 years, but there are a bunch of Silicon Valley futurists who believe the pace of biomedical engineering and just disease mitigation more generally is going to lead to a world where you're going to have life expectancy grow by more than a year per year for a really long period of time at some point soon. Some people think the outer bound on that is 150-year life expectancy. Some think it's a 2,000-year life expectancy. Whatever it is at the 81 and climbing that it's at right now, there's not a chance in the world we're still going to have a retirement age of 65 <laughs> in a couple of years. It's just not true. right? My, my seven-year-old boy has a 50-50 statistical chance, according to today's CDC tables, of seeing age 100. 50-50 chance of being 100. That's great. There's no way he's going to have 35 years of publicly subsidized retirement. And right now, all of our entitlement money, all of our federal budget is really about spending money on people who are between 65 and 80. We need to radically rethink how much of that money should be about helping uh, mid-career people become productive again when they're disrupted by exactly the same types of forces you're talking about. All right. Senator Sass, thank you very much for your Thanks time. Thanks for having me. So we have a, a couple of minutes until uh, Senator Manchin is here, and one of the aspects that we want to explore now is the, the in, interplay between organized labor trade policy in the United States. It's long been one of the, uh, one of the I guess, the source, the core of resistance to free trade policy has been... Uh, has been organized labor in the United States. Sean Higgins is our labor union reporter at the at the Washington. Is that your correct title there? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, sorry, somebody will bring him a, a microphone soon. Um, so yeah, our, our our labor guy. And the the brief history of this is obviously that the United States, the Republican Party, was generally a pro-trade, pro-free market party. 
and that it, uh, the Democratic Party with the, the massive base in the, in the labor unions has been more resistant to trade. What we've seen is a flip of that with the Republicans having a, pro, a, a less pro-free trade president. Democrats still, we got this, Democrats still powered by labor unions. And so when I speak to uh, pro-labor uh, Democrats, I often run into the situation where they say, I hate to say it, but Donald Trump is right. These trade deals are killing us. So what are you finding among labor as trade policy is, is in such tumult? It's, um, Trump, the Trump administration has a very unusual and difficult uh, relationship with labor. For the most part, uh, they hate him. <laughs> um, you know, the same people who will say, uh, you know, we need to uh, impeach this stain on the White House and get him out of there as soon as, as, soon as, he would, as, soon as we can, will also say, but we don't want to hamstring his ability to do a trade deal because we, we like what he's doing in that area. Um, in fact, one of the, one of the reasons why uh, the administration has had a difficult time uh, coming, getting a deal on NAFTA is that they've actually been pursuing a lot of um, organized labor zone uh, agenda, agenda in the deal. I mean, they've pushed for... <laughs> Um, Mexico raising its uh, uh, the wages for its factory workers. It has um, uh, trying sorry, I'm blanking on some of the other things at the moment, but um, they've 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 talked about uh, having the U.S. With, withdraw from the ISDS, the the uh, excuse me, the, uh, the investor state dispute settlement system, which is something organized labor has long hated as seen as a um, sort of a sop to big business. And they've tried to uh, increase the rules for um, country, the country of origin rules to, to make it easier or to increase the requirements for something to be declared made in the USA mm-hmm. as a sort of means to um, get more manufacturing back in the US. And they've they've pushed this very they've pushed this very hard, and they've and it's part of the reason again why the, the deal has stalled. They can't get Mexico to agree to some of these things. Um, or and can. so the Trump administration is actually listening to the labor yeah. unions and pushing their priorities. Yes. In that's, fact, I mean, that's kind of incredible for a Republican administration yeah. to be doing. Yeah, I mean, if you talk to I mean, some of the most arch liberals in Congress, like uh, Sherrod Brown or Rosa DeLauro, I mean, we'll, we'll say that. It's like, you know, in fact, Rosa DeLauro said uh, just last week and, uh, to me that, um, you know, we actually had better, re- better relations with the, the trade people in, the, in this administration than we did in the Obama administration, if you can believe that. Yep. Um, there was a, a congressional hearing um, the other week in the Ways and Means Committee, when one of the Republican Darren Hood was, um, you know, going at uh, the Trade Secretary Robert Lighthizer, you know, listing all the groups. He said, "Can you name anybody who supports the administration on rules of origin?" He's like, "Well, what about the AFL-CIO? Do they count?" And that was his sort of shut down uh, remark to him. And so, and, and why are they doing this? Because this is this is. Apparently, honestly, where Trump comes from on these issues. I mean, you know, Republicans and conservatives have always been seen as the free trade guys, but there always has been a sort of current of sort of populist thought that rejects that. And mm-hmm. you know, Pat Buchanan, that you know, talked, to, you know, had a lot of these same sort of positions. And Trump comes from that same sort of intellectual viewpoint. That you to look after the working guy, you have to make sure that we're not. Opening our opening the working guy up to competition from low wage workers in Mexico and China. Yeah, you talked about the um, research from uh, MIT earlier with uh, the senator uh, Sass, and that's that's the sort of thing that they're thinking about. It's like the smaller town um, workers, the sort of the blue collar people who did actually support Trump in the election, and that's 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 where their mindset is. And so they've 
you know, and they so they pursued all these uh, you know, policies that have long been uh, pushed by uh, hardcore Democrats and labor, and to include them in these uh, deals. And it's created this unusual situation where he has probably a bit more support on the Democratic side for a lot of the things he's talking about than on the Republican side. But he's not pushed it so hard that the Republicans are out and out rebelling on that either. Um, you know, they're very nervous about a lot of things and they don't like a lot of things that the administration does. But we're not seeing somebody such as you know our, our previous guest saying, you know, I'm going to fight him tooth and nail on this. So the administration has you know, charted a sort of new and unusual area that we haven't seen in a long time by any administration where they've actually sort of gotten a, a kind of a, almost bipartisan coalition on this. Whether that's good or bad, I mean, I leave to you, but they've created, a, they've created an area where if they, can get, if they can get a deal with the other countries, they'll probably have a lot of easier time getting it through Congress. The problem is they're, the reason why they're having a hard time getting a deal is because they're pushing you know, a much more ambitious agenda. And so to go back to what you said in the beginning, though, about the you said the unions hate Trump, but on the other hand, he did perform better among union voters than right. previous Republicans. So is this something about a, a divide between the, the union leadership and the, the union rank and file, or do they... Yes. Yeah. And, and it's been an issue that's, that's, that's been of a considerable concern to uh, the union leaders. I mean, they knew going into the election that um, he was doing a lot better among their people than... Uh, than say Mitt Romney was. Romney was very easy for them to sort of caricature as as the uncaring rich guy who was who was going to you know uh, sell, sell you down the river. Yep. Trump. They, Romney they, looks uh, like the guy who fired you is what. Yes, uh, the, the guy who fired you while smiling and yes. telling you it was a good thing for you. Um, you know, I'm going to help you find new opportunities by <laughs> letting you go. Um, Trump. Uh, Trump is Trump. They weren't able to do the same thing with Trump. Trump has, you know, however he, he comes by it, he has that appeal to those, uh, that, you know, that sort of segment of, of society. And, you know, uh, the, the interesting thing is th there's actually very little polling data on how union voters uh, actually vote. Most, for some reason, most of the polling companies ask about union households, which includes anybody in the House who mm -hmm. isn't, isn't a union member. So it's not necessarily a very good thing. The only people that actually do do it is the AFL-CIO, as far as I know. And they don't release the data. They just keep it for themselves. They'll, they'll drip out little bits. They, well, here's what we found about one thing. And it's always very something very particular that, that does that. But the little bits that they did drip out in the last election show that um, Trump was doing a lot better among their people than, than they, they'd hoped and expected. So you could see Trump's trade agenda in part as an effort to, a, a sort of typical old school political move, to split the other side's coalition. Yes. If they can weaken the, because uh, the union leadership is generally going to be an arm of the Democratic Party, but if they can weaken the bond between union leadership and union rank and file by pushing policies that at least seem like they will bring home blue collar jobs, it can weaken the Democratic coalition. Yes, and that's and that's sort of the tension that 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 we're sort of seeing. A few weeks back, the administration actually floated the trial balloon. Well, maybe we'll get back into TPP. And one of the interesting the the the, the reaction from that from labor leaders was was immediate and you know oh he's you know he's he's now completely betraying all the people you know he, he he's did. a typical Wall Street Republican. Yeah, yeah, that was that was their move to sort of make that argument, and then of course the administration dropped that, but. <coughs> um, that is, that is the sort of tension that we're seeing. He's, he has he has a lot of you know their support, and he has sort of an, an in and a foothold there that he's going to try and use at least as far as trade goes. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, should he be able to actually get a deal with these other countries? And so, 
uh, Senator Sass spoke a little bit about different priorities in dealing with, say, China. You have um, the the technology, the IP theft and, and related issues. You have uh, their five-year plans to dominate certain industries. But the Trump administration has been going after just getting them to sort of agree to buy more U.S. goods. In this case, it's what it seems like from the vague plans is uh, more agricultural pro- uh, products. Does, do the unions vis-a-vis China have priorities that they have laid out and made clear? Well, um, they, they certainly support things like the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, I'm not so certain about the agri- uh, you know, where they stand on, on agriculture issues because that's not something that's, um, yeah. th- that they have a, a strong stake in. But generally, I mean, they're, they're supportive of, of these moves as well. Um, you know, they've always, they'll, they'll never say they're protectionist or they're against trade, but they'll always, they'll always argue, well, trade is not fair now. The, the, you know, our trading partners are, are already cheating, cheating against us, which, again, is the same argument that Trump makes. Yep. I mean, it, and the interesting thing is Trump, Trump very, has a very strong view that the trade deficit is an actual loss of money, uh, which is not a view that most economists have. Um, but you know, I've asked some people in the administration about this, and he's he's very firm on this. He he thinks that if we're not selling more than we're buying, that, that we're that we're losing out, and you know um, that's that's and that's where he's sort of going with all these deals. And so the <clears throat> with again the the tariffs, I see that I could agree with the labor union argument on this up to a certain point, where I say, well, it's good for us to take down, to get them to take down their tariffs. And if what we need to do is impose tariffs, talk to them, and both take down our tariffs, us and China, then that's good and that opens up free and open competition. So I would like to see U.S. companies, ideally, not subsidized and not protected, competing against Chinese companies, not subsidized and not protected. Do you think that's something that uh, U.S. labor would go along with? Um, probably they would probably prefer U.S. Uh, industries be more protected <laughs> than um, and, and not to have a completely uh, um, on you know uh, no no tariff uh, yeah. no tariff or barrier system at all. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, their 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 int- their interests are um, you know ostensibly their their members in, in protecting their jobs and you know their their base and and so you know complete, completely free and open uh, trade is simply not in their not in their ultimate interest. So I would say no, but the, you typically won't hear them, you know, say that say that flat out or out loud. And then, is the focus these days more on uh, China or more on NAFTA renegotiation or some other part when the when the unions talk about trade? Because we seem to, while NAFTA was kind of a part of the the campaign, and there's been stuff vis-a-vis Europe, especially after Brexit. Almost all the attention of this administration has been focused on China. And frankly, if you look at the numbers, that's, that, that's sensible. Uh, is that where the union's focus is as well? I think they're a bit more focused on NAFTA because the, sort of the benefits from, from changing the policies there are probably a little bit more immediate. You know, for example, we can change the rules of origin you know, on the supply chain. That may actually force more manufacturers to, you know, to relocate into the U.S. or to expand facilities there. So that's, I think that's where they're sort of looking... You know, where they're looking at it from. Now, but Senator Sass says that protectionist policies, saying that they will bring home jobs is lying to people, um, that you're going to increase or even protect jobs 
by uh, protecting U.S. manufacturing. I mean, robots are going to do a lot of these jobs. Is this? And so when I think about the labor unions, they want there to be more and higher paid U.S. workers in U.S. manufacturing. The share of the U.S. economy that is manufacturing or the share of goods that we export doesn't really matter to them. What matters to them is jobs. So what about the sort of technology shock? Is this something the unions have an answer to? Do you think that they have, let me ask you that, do you think they have an answer to the technology shock problem? No, they, don't, they really don't. It's, it's an issue they've been, they've been struggling with. I mean, because obviously you can't unionize a robot. <laughs> I mean, they would if they could, but, but you can't. Um, but no, and, and that, I think that's, that's kind of an issue that sort of um, stands apart, I think, from trade, because it's, it's, a, it's a problem they face you know, in, in industries that have no, um, no trade competition at all. I mean, the restaurant industry, for example, is pushing more and more into, into um, automation and, and that type of stuff. And you know, that's, that's obviously not something that a trade deal is going to impact one way or the other. And the, uh, so then it seems possible that the, the putting their hopes in protectionism, if they do get some more tariffs or if they do get um, any of these uh, trade concessions, that that may not translate into more jobs. It, there, it may not. I mean, obviously we'll see. I think from their perspective they think it will help. I, I will say that I, you know, my, my impression from, from what the, the union leaders say and they write is that they understand that this is not the be-all and end-all, that they have to, that there needs to be more fundamental changes uh, to the economy and to the uh, laws uh, involving this before, before they can save labor, at least labor as, they, as we currently understand it. I mean, it's gonna, it's, the workforce and, and the nature of, of work is changing itself, and the laws on that have not evolved uh, very much. I mean, we're still being governed primarily by laws written in the 1930s. Um, you know, before before even you know, sort of we, we really grew as a manufacturing country. Um, so that's something that's going to have to be addressed. But the, but that doesn't mean that they don't think that this isn't the trade isn't important and isn't something that that needs to, needs to be addressed and that they think they can push into a direction more beneficial at least for them. And the administration, you know, to their surprise, is the first is the first one really in a long time that seems to be seems to, seems to be uh, seems to be doing that. More so, even than you know, the Obama administration or the Clinton administration or any of the others that they put all their uh, chips into. So one of the the standard liberal attacks on Trump will be, oh well, he campaigned as a populist. He reached out. He said he was the the labor guy, um, but in the end, he's siding with Gary Cohn and and the Wall Street guys and that sort of thing. Do you think that the the labor rank and file see it that way, or do you think that they see, wait, no, he has Trump actually is is fighting for the working man. Uh, there's there's definitely a divide between um, the leadership and their own members. I mean, you see that again in, in the voting. Um, you know, the you know the, the membership all went so heavily Democratic, and their members didn't necessarily do that. And a big part of the issue is that you know a lot of people who are you know in unions um, aren't necessarily uh, there because they necessarily want to be. I mean, a mm-hmm. lot of people simply you know work in closed shops or something like that, where they are obliged to be part of it or they're obliged to be covered by the uh, the, the deal. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, there is a divide, and they're they're not necessarily um, always uh, talking, uh, you know, um, in, in the voices of their members. They're trying to. I mean, one of the interesting things about the you know the sort of evolution of the, of the things we're seeing now is that they're being forced to more sort of directly address the, the wants and needs of their own members. We have a Supreme Court case coming up, Janus, which could radically reinvent um, public sector unions by essentially making them all all public sector unions right yep. to work. And uh, they're, one of the things they're trying, you know, the unions are trying to do is they're trying to sort of re, 
because basically in, in most of the public sector unions don't really have very much in the way of a ground level organization because they don't need it. I mean, people just because, automatically yeah. made unions when they're signed up or union members when they're signed up. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Okay. Oops. Yeah, let me just uh, grab this. Hi. Brooke, do you want to get this? So <clears throat> we had uh, Senator Sass from there. I keep. We have Senator Sass from an agricultural state, and uh, Senator. What's oh, oh, we are going to take a five-minute break now. Thank you, Senator Manchin. We'll be back in when you guys come back. There's bathrooms out there, and hopefully, still some snacks. Thank you.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Again, I'm Tim Carney, commentary editor at the Washington Examiner. And now uh, we have the pleasure of the company of Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. So thank you for joining us today to talk about trade. And I just want to uh, start out, I, I started with Senator Sass by saying there's a, a lot of agreement among economists and among the leadership in both parties in favor of free trade in general, and that Donald Trump's election has sort of rattled that. So I guess what would be your biggest critique of the pro-free trade argument? Well, free is not fair. I think this is the first place you have to start. Uh, and as West Virginia, we've been hit hard. NAFTA hit us hard. First of all, when you do trade agreements like anything else, I, I'm, I'm, I, I believe that the president and his administration, I've spoken to Peter Navarro, believe in bilateral, not multilateral. And I believe that very strongly. I believe that we should have an agreement with Mexico and we could have another agreement with, uh, with uh, Canada. Uh, and then also to go 20 years or more without having a review is un unbelievable. We don't do that with anything. I also believe that all trade agreements should have a five-year sunset review to sit down and see if they met their intent. So everything we do has an intent to, do, to make something better. So if you're having a trade agreement, some countries we try to help raise them out of abject poverty. We give them certain entrees to our markets. Uh, that's the compassion we have as Americans, and we should be helping people we can around the world. But when you have multilateral and five or six or 10 or 12 countries involved in a trade deal, there's other countries that already have a matured economy is going to be taking advantage of it. And that's what I'm not in favor of. Uh, so I've looked at all of them, and uh, I think that we have been taken advantage of, uh, and we can do a much better job. So with that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm open to uh, uh, free trading as long as there's a fair trading goes with it. I think the two are synonymous. So say more about what's not fair in the in the current agreements either nafta or what what's going on well nafta i mean if our intent was to raise uh, to raise the quality of life and, and opportunities that people would have in mexico uh then we should have done it after 20 years while they still have a lower than one dollar 25 minimum wage we didn't raise anybody all we did was transfer the wealth we let our corporations go into those countries take advantage of cheap labor send the product back to the consuming market of america and destroy some of the uh manufacturing jobs we had. It just makes no sense to me at all. I've lost steel jobs. I've lost manufacturing jobs. I've lost coking and steel. You know, I've lost all these. And uh, I can show you, you know, that it did not work. Maybe after five years, we could have made an adjustment. Now, the uh, 
the, the economist's argument is that, yes, there will be uh, localized suffering by industries that are exposed to competition, but in the because of more free and more open competition, that the general welfare of the entire country will be improved, that I get cheaper goods, and then with the surplus from the cheaper sneakers, I'm able to spend more money at some other industry, and the whole economy rises. And there's fairly good consensus among economists that if you look at the at a nation-level economy on the aggregate, that it benefits from free trade. That doesn't necessarily contradict your argument that West Virginia is suffering, but do you think that the U.S. as a whole or that other parts of the U.S. are benefiting from free trade? Well, there's, there's, been, there's winners and losers in every deal, so I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, de you know, declining that. Uh, with all these deals here, I, I just, uh, if you're going to raise another economy, if, if you think a trade deal with the United States, the greatest consuming economy in the world or the world's ever known, uh, then you would think sooner or later that country has to raise its standards. Well, don't you think the trade deal should be equal? I mean, look at China. Don't you think we should have the same access to their markets as they have to our markets? If it's going to be fair and it's going to be open and free, then why does, market, why does China have all the restrictions they do on our products going into their market? That's all I've said. It's pretty simple. In West Virginia, I, if I go home and explain it, I can vote for it. Mm -hmm. If I can't explain it, it makes no sense. I can't make it work. And if you have autos going into China at a 25% tariff and their autos are same type of parts coming into our markets at 2.5%, something's wrong. It doesn't take a mathematician to figure out we got screwed. Do you think that steel tariffs and aluminum tariffs are the, are the proper response? As I company? definitely think the steel tariffs. I'm, just, I'm, very, I'm very disappointed that everyone's dragging their feet and not, not going after it. Uh, I never did think at first when you put a blanket across the whole uh, global market of 25 and 10, uh, I would have at that time started out at the, at the bad behavior of, of the countries that we know that are egregious to what, uh, how we're trading with so them. So target tariffs towards countries Target tariffs, most are... certainly. Well, we came right back off of, why would you put a tariff on Canada when we have a surplus? Mm -hmm. It didn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, and how can, you, how can you sit back and think China's producing 50% of the steel in the world and only 2% of that's coming to America? Well, we know it's coming by different through different venues, and we have to shut that down. And now, because of our delay of action on the tariffs, we're getting more dumped at a faster rate than ever before. Somebody's got to do something. Now, what, what you call dumping, a U.S. manufacturer might call more affordable inputs. In fact, half of all U.S. imports are inputs into future manufacturing. Let's, so let's, if you're a car maker making a car part and you get steel or aluminum, that becomes part of a steel or aluminum car. And so why would you want to raise a price on that? Does that not hurt manufacturing to raise a price on steel? I don't, I'm, 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 a, I'm all for business. I'm, all, I'm, a, I'm a business person. I've always been a business person. Uh, but with that being said, let's look at, at, at the strategically for our country and the security of our nation. Mm -hmm. Look at what's happening there. And if you, if you continue to... Uh, perfect example is how much steel do we make in America? How much do we produce? How much uh, rare earth minerals do we produce in America? Who do we depend on for the things that we operate in every day and we depend on uh, consumption-wise in our country? Uh, why would we put ourselves so vulnerable and dependent? If we were dependent this much on energy, foreign energy, as we are on all foreign goods to run the greatest economy in the world, that doesn't make sense to me. We used to have strategic stock stockpiles.
In West Virginia, we used to have a lot of strategic stockpiles for this U.S. government of ours and this consuming nation in the protection of our, of our security, and those were all done away with a decade or more ago. So I want you to go further on this, on why it's a security threat for us to be uh, dependent on other countries for their inputs. Because one, one argument is that the more tied together economies are, the more peaceful they're going to be. And we're sort of pr promoting cooperation. But you're suggesting that if we're dependent for key inputs on other countries, that our security is at risk. So I want you to say more explicitly how. Well, I guess you would, you know, do you believe that China with China's uh, entree to our markets and the uh, perfect example, I was totally opposed to Chinese, China buying the uh, Chicago Stock Exchange. I was the one senator that, that put a stop to it. I thought it was wrong for them. And the only thing, I, common sense was, we can't go over there and buy the same type of uh, opportunities into their markets. And why would I allow them to have that opportunity in our markets, all the sensitive information that comes with it? Look at ZTE. Mm -hmm. We know they were selling to Iran and, and different bad actors. North Korea put a seven-year hiatus on that, and all that's been put on hold. You think they're going to let us do the same? And if someone doesn't step forward and look at the security of our nation, first and foremost, you know, uh, all the trade deals in the, in the, aren't, aren't going to do you much good. Now, you have, I don't think you've brought up the, uh, the trade deficit. Uh, is that something you worry about? Is that a priority? Are there other priorities? I worry about deficits in general. Uh, I don't think any person in this room, if you have, if you have unmanaged debt, it'll, you'll be cowardly in the decisions you make. It happens to all of us. You just can't, you can't <coughs> work with a total unmanaged debt. And we're $20 trillion going to $22 trillion in rapid, in rapid fire. Uh, by 2023, our interest on our debt will be greater than the defense of our nation, what we're spending. That's not sustainable. But as far as, as, far as uh, the flow of goods and the fact that yeah, we are... Yeah, 350 to $500 billion deficit. Yeah, that's, 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 so, that's not a good position to be in. So uh, you've, got, you've got a few different arguments here now. I've got a lot of arguments. Yes, you do. Um, the, the national security, the, the jobs, the trade deficit, and, the, and then... Let's the start with IP. national security first, okay? We're the superpower of the world. Superpower of the world. With that comes a lot of responsibilities. And those responsibilities is try to, is try to protect freedoms anywhere they may exist and anywhere they're trying to emerge. That's first and foremost, if you want to have a peaceful world. A lot of that is trade, and that's what we have our trade policies around this type of, of uh, free uh, freedom, if you will. Those countries who are not an open and free society, they may give you the appearance mm -hmm. of an open and free society, but look at, their, uh, look at their government process and look at their governing process. Uh, that would tell you everything you need to know. So you have to be more cautious. Uh, we're not as cautious as we should. We shouldn't be in the situation we're in now with these tremendous tr trade deficits uh, and with countries that we know won't give us the same access. With all that, that keeps us, that makes us vulnerable, I think. So I go back uh, to, the, uh, to the security of the nation first, along with the freedoms that we have and the freedoms that we profess around the world and try to support. If those don't go lockstep, then you've got serious Im imbalance, and that's what we're running into now. How do you think the Trump administration so far is doing in 
these regards? Well, I think they, you know, I, I, in all honesty, I like, I like the president's rhetoric that he's had. I, I think it's, it's strong. Uh, I think he has a lot of infighting uh, with the administration, which is to be expected. But not to the point, you know, he's been falling through a lot of promises he's made. West Virginians like a lot of the things. It's given them an opportunity to be more stable in the things we do in extraction industries. Uh, uh, but it's the undecidedness right now, and the administration's t tugging and pulling at each other is calling, causing inaction, and inaction is causing us a lot of, I think, consternation within the marketplace. Uh, so I would like to see them be, be more finite and finish what they've said they're going to do. But the, the president is a, a deal maker, right? He, he likes to go in, and to be a deal maker, you have to be flexible and willing, and willing to move. Not if you've been, your rhetoric has been for the last year, we got screwed. These are the hor horrible trade deals. A lot of people bought into that. We got screwed in their horrible trade deals. Fix them. And that's all we're saying now. Let's follow through and fix them. And, and I know a lot of his staff is, uh, there's some staff pushing back. Uh, I'm a, Lighthouser is a great guy, and I think he knows what's going on. He's accepted by both sides as a bipartisan mm -hmm. uh, uh, guard, if you will. Peter Navarro, I like where Peter's going, uh, and I've got other ones I have concerns about. Uh, <laughs> do you, um, is your party with you on this? Do you think the Democrats are? I, I, you know, I, I'm not a Washington Democrat. I don't think there's any secret about that. I'm a West Virginia Democrat. And I've got a lot of my dear close friends who are not Washington Republicans. They're West Virginia Republicans. Mm -hmm. We think differently. It's not all about I'm against you because you have a D or an R. It's about common sense. How do you get things done? We might have a little different philosophical uh, views, but we eventually come together. This place is designed not to come together because for some reason it's better for business if we're fighting all the time. And that makes it hard for me to understand and comprehend we see a pathway forward, you can fix something, let's do it. I don't care whether a D gets credit or an R gets credit. So my party uh, that I'm in, uh, the Democratic Party, uh, I don't ask for their blessings. So, uh, you know, they accept who I am. It's a big tent. Uh, I think I bring a rural uh, approach to the, the, the concerns that we have. And um, we still have very much uh, compassion. I say I'm a fiscal, I'm fiscally responsible, compassionate, just who I am. But that's how I was raised, and that's how most of rural America has been, and even urban America. But sometimes they get away from their from their roots. Now, the one of the argument that Senator Sass made this morning said that even if trade has helped uh, erode some of these these jobs, manufacturing jobs, etc. Uh, protectionist policies, tariffs aren't really going to bring them back. And you're, he said that you're lying to people if you say that our, our trade policies can bring back what you used to have. Are you trying to bring back you know, a, a coal economy or other parts of the West Virginia economy that used to exist? Do you think your policies no. can actually bring things back? No, and I've told the president. He says, Joey, says, we're going to bring all the coal miner jobs back. I said, Mr. President, be very careful about that. When I was governor of the state of West Virginia, up until 2009, 2010, we were mining about 158 million tons a year. Uh, we're down to 80 million tons last year. We might get at 88 to 90. We're not going to get back to those levels. The market has changed. The energy market has shifted. 
And with that, we don't have the end user that we used to have. And that that can be due to fracking and natural gas. Yeah. And well, we have, we've been blessed. The good Lord's yeah. blessed us, uh, you know, uh, with a tremendous abundance of, of energy resources. The fracking, the wet properties that come from propanes, that things, we have a lot of good quality values that we can add to that and build on those markets. And uh, But that's brought an awful lot of cheap fuel onto the market and changed the dynamics. But with that, you still need the base load. So... Back to where Ben was, and Ben's a very, I like Ben, he's a very sharp, articulate young person, he's got a tremendous future. Uh, I go back still to the security. We have a responsibility as a superpower of the world. First and foremost, it's to remain the superpower of the world. That's the first and foremost responsibility that we have. And you can't do that unless you have certain types of manufacturing processes and certain amount of stock supplies that you can always rely on without having to depend on someone else cutting off the spigot. Mm-hmm. Next of all, trade is just trade. If we're going to trade, then we have the same open markets. Okay? You shouldn't have an imbalance as far as you shouldn't have a 10% tariff on products that I want my market to get to yours where you want open access to mine. But are you just making this as a fairness yeah. argument? or There's a fairness an and also a security in economics. Well, I think economics will take care of itself. You're saying that we're supposed to have a complete open market with very little tariffs, if any, and a freedom to move in our markets, and that's going to make all of us much more prosperous. Okay? Why we, if we're going to be prosperous, should we be manufacturing? Should we be producing? Should we not have more access to other markets than just our own? So we're going to be competing in our own market. I want to be able to get into China's market. With one and a half billion people, mm-hmm. let me have the same access that you want to my markets. To the left, but you have to put now, the European, I mean, put the thing on the dashboard. with the European Union, you know, we have no problems there. There's more of a quality of, 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 of life that we have and quality of concerns that we have. And it's more of an open type market. We look at it different. We look at Canada different. But other than that, we're very skeptical, and we should be, of others. Now, do you? how much do you think trade policy can help the economy of West Virginia? Oh, no. I, I, you know, I think we all benefit. Rising tide lifts all ships. But I'm, I'm saying that West Virginia has deeper problems. You're referring to the economic problems of the, the coal industry sort of already going First away. of all, we have, a lot of, we have a lot of prosperity in the state of West Virginia. We have one section of our state that's really hit the hardest. That's about 12 counties in our southern counties of West Virginia, mm-hmm. southern West Virginia which mainly around extraction. The first problem that we have there is most of the land has been out-of-state landowners, large land companies. So a little bit of that, very little of that wealth ever stays in that area. There's very little investment put back into it. So over the years, billions and billions and billions of dollars, whether it was hardwood timber, and now it's all the extraction of the coal and some of the greatest coal seams in the world, as far as metallurgical coal, has been taken out with very little put back. That's what's caused more of a challenge. We have to work and make sure that Southern West Virginia has an ability to succeed. Other than that, we've had good growth in our eastern panhandle, north central, high-tech quarters, uh, eastern uh, northern panhandle, with all the growth in the Pittsburgh area. Mm-hmm. We've benefited by that. So West Virginia uh, has done quite well in many arenas, but the southern coal fields have been hit the hardest, and we've had the hardest time of diversifying. Can that be brought back? Well, it will with natural gas. Uh, and if we can get, uh, we have the, uh, as you know, the, uh, uh, the chemical valley comes down the Ohio River, goes up the Kanawha River, one of the greatest chemical other than the yeah. southwest. 
we think West Virginia should be part of a Mid-Atlantic Energy Hub for the security of our nation. You get a major hurricane coming up the, uh, uh, the channel in, in, uh, in uh, Texas, and you're wiping out an awful lot of the energy resources that we have. So for the backup, and we're looking at that, we think we can be a tremendous backstop and help this country be more secured and be closer to the market. So there's well, a lot of things going on. The energy security is one of West Virginia. <laughs> uh, the energy security, uh, increasing energy security that we have because of our fracking is one of the arguments that the U.S. can do fine with uh, free and open trade um, because we have cheaper energy and we can start manufacturing here without having to erect trade barriers. So well, how quick do we turn around basically from importing LNG to exporting LNG? Think about that. Because 10 years ago, we never thought. We were building stations here to, to offload. Yep. Now we're building stations and reversing to load. And we can help secure the world, energy supply of the world right now. A lot of our partners and allies not being dependent on Russia and being bottlenecked and choked off. And so uh, I guess we are now out of time. We're going to have to move <laughs> on to the panel. But thank you very much, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. We have to get some uh, chairs up here for the panel. One more. All right, thank you. Here comes our panel. <laughs> First, we have uh, Tori Whiting, trade economist at the Heritage Foundation. We've also got Neil Hare, who's a president at Global Visions Communications and a former vice president at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Clark Packard, trade policy manager for the R Street Institute and a former policy advisor for Nikki Haley, who's now the U.N. ambassador. And Scott Paul, who's the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Now, we have lots of trade expertise on this panel and exactly 30 minutes before the Heritage Foundation chases us out. So I just want to um, quickly say, uh, let me start with you. What do you think is the most important thing that Americans, that this audience should know about trade considering the current status of the trade debate? Well, thank you so much for your question. I really appreciate it, and, and thank you all for being here today. You know, the most important thing for me that, to my knowledge, hasn't been brought up at all this morning is the impact that the current trading environment is having on American manufacturers and individuals and people and businesses across this country. Part of what I do is I travel all around the country talking about why trade matters and why it's important. And recently I've had a lot of communication from manufacturers in the tool and die industry and steel and aluminum users who tell me, and I quote, it feels like 2008 right now. 
in the industry because prices are so volatile for them. They're not getting work. They're looking at having to lay off their workers, which is completely contrary to where this administration is and should be going with their trade policies. These are the businesses that use steel and aluminum. Yes, these are businesses that use steel and aluminum. They employ around 7 million Americans across this country. And they are really hurting. You know, tax reform is supposed to help these companies. Deregulation is supposed to help these companies. But if they can't get the products they need at good prices, at prices that are viable for them, they can't do business. And I, I was thinking of slightly old data. And today I said about half of U.S. imports are inputs into other manufacturing. Is that still correct? That's absolutely correct. So it's roughly when you add in capital goods, which are things like machinery, you're looking at two-thirds. So... What do you think is the most important thing people should know about trade right now? Well, I think the, the biggest story is China. And it's not the biggest story just in trade, but I think of the, you know, Trump's administration. We've been focused on Russia for a lot of reasons, but really it's going to be about China um, and what the, the recent uh, trade negotiations have been. I mean, we uh, I do want to shout out to our, you know, the Taiwan civil government and talk about uh, Taiwan as a perfect example. You know, they're our 11th, 11th biggest economy in the world our ninth biggest trading partner and seventh biggest uh, agricultural trading partner. And yet uh, China has been exerting so much influence over our relationship with Taiwan. Uh, recently doing military exercise, exercises in the Straits of Taiwan to flex their muscle over a country that's a, it's a big partner of the U.S. and that we want to be an even stronger partner. Um, that's that's a big problem, and I think until we start dealing with uh, with that, we're going to be we're going to be shortchanged. I think it was, uh, I think President Trump uh, is beholden to the China, excuse me, um, because of the, the the North Korean negotiations right now, and that may be a reason why we backed off the trade talks and and uh, the, the tariffs that we were talking about. Um, but until we fix that problem, uh, you know, it's going to be a big issue for us, Clark. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the, the largest problem facing the trade environment right now is just backing away from the global trade consensus. If you look at the lead up to the Great Depression and then World War II, um, sort of in the aftermath of that, the United States put in place sort of the rules-based trading system, the creation of the, w, or the GATT, which turned into the WTO. Um, and, you know, economists are basically unanimous uh, in support of free trade. Um, and so my concern is, for the first time, uh, probably since Herbert Hoover, we've had a, a president who really just disregards or, or ignores that global consensus in favor of free markets and, and, and the exchange of goods across borders. So that, to me, is, is the largest concern. Scott? Well, I think if anything's clear is that the rules of trade matter. Um, that it's not just a market-based uh, enterprise. And we see that in a couple of ways. Senator Manchin mentioned the failure of NAFTA, and it's right. It didn't build up a middle class in Mexico because the worker rights requirements were weak. So the theory didn't work. With respect to China, uh, the idea was that it would democratize China. More, I mean, the opposite has happened. Um, and and China is entrenched in state-led capitalism because that wasn't a condition of their entry into the global trading system. Senator Sass mentioned lots of agricultural exports to Nebraska, but they're raw grains. They're not processed because China excludes those from its markets. And so 
These rules matter a great deal, and they can benefit American workers or businesses, or they can disadvantage us. I, I don't disagree that the global system set up after World, World War II was fantastic, but we didn't have any competition. They were asymmetrical. If it was a Cold War play, we're in a different environment right now. We have a strategic competitor in China uh, who, who doesn't believe in reciprocity. Uh, and we've seen a hollowing out of a lot of our uh, strategic industrial capabilities, uh, even as we're moving ahead to artificial intelligence robotics. It's important that we get these rules right or we're going to lose the race to the future as well. Mark, I want to hear your reaction to Scott's assessment of China and Mexico in, in the last few decades. Sure. I mean, look, I, I'm, I completely disagree with that. I, I think China's entry into the WTO caused certain problems. Uh, there's no one that would doubt that. Uh, the, you mentioned earlier the China shock. I think that's real. But I, I think if you talk to David Otter, uh, he will tell you, look, this is not, this wasn't driven, I mean, it, it may have been driven by trade, but, but the policy response is about education. It's about flexibility in labor markets. It's about speeding up recovery. It, he is still a, a, a committed free trader. Now, now I will say that I, I do agree the United States needs to be aggressive at times in enforcing trade rules. Uh, I testified before the United States Trade Representative last week, and I told them, take all of your complaints and file the case at the WTO. Now, maybe I'm, I'm just a trade lawyer and not an economist, and, and there, but there seems to be this idea that the WTO is an ineffective organization. I think that's completely wrong. The United States wins 90% of the cases it brings. It wins a higher percentage of the cases brought against it. We were the architect of these rules. We have an obligation to protect the institution of the WTO. Well, look, I'm, I'm as big a free trader as, as there possibly is, but I mean, China has been breaking the rules for years. I mean, they, they've been dumping steel into our country for, for years and years. They've been stealing our intellectual property blatantly for years and years, and we've just done nothing about it. So are we going to just keep keep that status quo, or are we going to you know push back a little bit? File the case. And, well, File the case. Well, I, uh, we'll file the cases, but we haven't. We haven't it's like playing whack-a-mole, you know, so, though, well, China. Do you have to, yeah. you know, what's, what's your <laughs> response? Is China cheating? Is, is there anything we can do about it? Does the WTO work? Listen, here's the thing. I agree with Clark. You have to bring the cases to the WTO. He's absolutely correct that you know we win the majority of cases we take to the WTO, and we don't utilize that system as well as we should. Now, is there room maybe for improvement in the way that the WTO works and perhaps in the things that the WTO covers? There are some lapses in, in areas that we're looking at in more modern trade in more modern trading like digital trade and services um, that the WTO doesn't necessarily write the rules for. So there's definitely room for that. But what we do know time and time again, and I will tell you from an economist's point of view, what we do know time and time again is that tariffs cause problems and tariffs harm more people than they help, if they do help at all. And, and going that WTO route is the way to go. It is going to minimize the impact that we're going to have in the domestic economy. And if you don't want to go the WTO route and it's more appropriate to use existing U.S. trade laws like anti-dumping and countervailing duties, I'm not saying I'm a proponent of, of those types of duties, but what I'm saying is that there are trade laws on the books that are more appropriately suited for things like dumping and subsidizing. Now, the trade laws that are not appropriate are things like Section 201, Section 232, and in some cases, Section 301. What do these sections do? So Section 201 is the safeguards, which we saw used to impose tariffs on washing machines and solar panels and modules. Um, 
there's a funny case about that, but I will kind of move on. Section 232 is a, um, a way to restrict trade based on national security, which is what we're seeing the steel and aluminum tariffs imposed under. And um, we're already seeing the, de the devastating effects, like I was mentioning before, with some of those tariffs. Yeah, I, 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 I want to talk about that for a second, because the, the idea of American trade policy, and Clark did mention this, if you look back at the, the biggest trade legislation that was passed in the 60s, the Trade Expansion Act, we wanted to expand trade. We wanted to enforce the law. That's where Section 232 comes from, and we wanted to help workers adjust. We do a terrible job at the enforcement and the adjustment. Uh, we've done a pretty good job with the expansion. And if you don't support enforcement, if you don't support an adjustment, support for expansion is going to erode. And that's what we've seen. That's what you see in President Trump. He has correctly identified some of the flaws. And there's, you know, there's a number of Republican and Democratic voters who clearly uh, align themselves with that message and that the Clinton-Bush-Obama approach on trade did not work, and the stakes couldn't be higher with the strategic competition with China. We cannot back off. Well, let me ask you a, a quick question about the, the steel and aluminum tariffs. If you're representing manufacturers, don't a lot of them see that as just a massive price hike on their imports? You, there's two ways this, this works. No one is entitled to a dump price. I mean, that, that's why you have the rules of trade. There's not, a, there's not an entity that, that's entitled to a dump price, and you're uh, we're trying to root out overcapacity uh, in the Chinese steel sector, trying to make sure that its bad behavior doesn't spill over the borders and you see so the transshipments. So it's rooting out overcapacity, increasing prices by 40% domestically? So prices go up and down. The, the biggest in shock that, that, that manufacturers saw in, China, in, in prices were when China started its massive consumption in the mid-2000s. So we're wait, we don't want I don't want Beijing to call the shots on our steel pricing. I want I want it to be set, and you have to realign it. Uh, otherwise, you 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 face China, which has five out of the ten largest steel companies. They're state owned, essentially distorting the world market. That's something that uh, private sector producers in the United States and Europe can't afford. I, I mean, this is was it inelegantly rolled out? I don't disagree with that. It could have been uh, better rolled out. But, but we have to engage in this process. Well, Clark, I want to ask you about the, the state-owned uh, enterprises in, in China. Now, first of all, this was one thing when I talked to the Obama people about TPP. One of their goals was to go after state-owned enterprises in other countries, and I thought that that was, uh, that was salutary. But when we look at, I mean, the largest bank in the world is a, a state-owned Chinese bank. And in addition, there's all these state-owned industries and all this state support. So is they are clearly, uh, what Senator Manson says, that's not fair and so it's not free, that the, these guys are so subsidized that the, the talk of free trade is ill-fitting for a market that is so subsidized that, in fact, so much of it is, in fact, government agencies we're competing against rather than companies. What's your response? Yeah, I, I mean, I do agree with, with the benefit. One of the great benefits of the TPP was, was the Obama administration took that issue seriously, and, and I commend them. I, I fought hard, hard as anybody in this town to get the TPP done. I really desperately wanted that agreement done. Um, I, I do agree that, that it, it's a problem. Um, I don't know that it's as big of a problem as, as people seem to make it out to be, because if you think about it, if a foreign, I, and, and Scott's going to disagree with me here, but, you know, if a foreign company, country wants to subsidize a product to the benefit of American consumers, that's fine with me. It, it, from a pure economic perspective, that is totally fine with me. If they're so dumb that they're going to spend their scarce resources 
making it cheaper for me to buy something, I, I'm sorry, I think that that's not the end of the world. And I think that Clark is, I mean, Clark, you're, you're right with the with the, the economic theory behind it. And and I think I, I sympathize with you, Scott, because I, I don't disagree that enforcing when enforcement is necessary is a good thing to do. What I do disagree with is enforcing our trade laws without considering downstream impacts, which is what our current laws do. No law in the books requires a full cost-benefit analysis that looks at the impact on downstream industries, and that's why we always see these devastating effects. Well, you can't you can't pretend like trade policy exists in a vacuum. I mean, it, it goes hand in hand with foreign policy and diplomacy. I mean, I think what you just saw happen was, um, you know, China was brokering our deal with Kim Jong Un in North Korea to sit down and talk about nuclear policy or foreign policy, and uh, trade policy got caught up in the middle of it. And all of a sudden, the tariffs we were talking about, whether you believe in them or not, are now off the table. And now, whether you believe in it or not, the talks are off the table too, potentially, as of what we heard yesterday. So these, this isn't just about downstream to the consumer in America. This is American foreign policy at stake. And we can't be pushed around by China. We just can't let it happen anymore. That's well, why we needed CPP. That, so well, my, I agree with that. We my should back out of that one. Uh, for uh, for Clark and Tory, let's start with you, Tory. The national security is one point. We we talked earlier in the David Autor studies are talk about how communities can be totally demolished, and you you know you demolish the, the rural county south of Pittsburgh, and you put it on a spreadsheet and you say their losses are smaller than the gains to the whole economy. That's sort of an inhuman and I would say an unconservative way of of looking at it, just thinking, well, you can account their job losses. It's not just job losses, it's criminality, it's uh, illegitimate births. So for, isn't, is there a conservative argument that while more free and open trade maximizes the national wealth, there are other goods that need to be pursued and that that might cut against the arguments for free trade? Well, I know you had a great conversation with Senator Sass at the, at the beginning of the program this morning. And um, I mean, I absolutely do sympathize with those things. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll answer this by kind of telling you a story. Um, you know, last year I, I had the opportunity to go visit a steel mill, actually a shuttered steel mill north of Pittsburgh in Sherrill, Pennsylvania. Um, or Sh sorry, Sharon, uh, pardon me. But, um, and, and this mill had been completely shuttered for years and it was reopened by a what we call a steel slab converter. So it's somebody who comes in in a, in a different part of the manufacturing process for, for steel making. And these people reopened this shuttered steel mill and are benefiting from the fact that they can import slab to then further process. And that's possible because of trade. So I know that there are, are there are you know, negative consequences and, and negative externalities in other areas, but the, the net is there and the net is in the data. Um, and stories like that are what make me optimistic about free trade really being a proper answer. Clark? I, I, I tend to agree with that in some respects, that, that, that there is something about community. I, I just don't know that trade has a ton to do with it anymore. Um, and I, I am sympathetic that, that, that people are, were slow to respond. Economists got it wrong that, look, you admit China into the WTO, there's going to be a surge of imports, but people are quick to adjust. Uh, in the Otter study, I take that, take that seriously, that, that it was not uh, as fast as, as economists thought. Um, but, but for every story you hear about a shuttered steel mill, um, if you think about, I, I'm from South Carolina, uh, if you think about going to Greenville, South Carolina, um, you have major plants opening, and, and that's from foreign investment. 
And so you can, and, and guess what? Those are building communities there. Um, so I, I think it's tough, and I just don't know what sort of guide you use to, to determine other than sort of a market process that, that you know, the job in, in Pennsylvania is more valuable than the job in South Carolina. It just so happens that South Carolina has been a net beneficiary of, of things like NAFTA and the WTO. And, and, it, and we, again, we need to do better. We need to do more. But we have a, a, a tendency in this country to sort of crucify trade for the sins of bad domestic policy. And that's mm-hmm. That's my argument that, that we, this is not really about trade. It's about how we respond to technology, uh, the sort of autom, you know, automizing or uh, automation. automation. Uh, and, and, you know, Ben Sass hit that right on the head. I, I just don't see how trade kind of fits in long term with that. Scott, do you have a, a reaction either to the, I mean, well, I guess I would wonder about the automation because when you have Senator Manchin up here and he's talking about, Jobs, manufacturing yeah. jobs. Now, yeah. manufacturing as a share of the economy has stayed pretty high while the jobs have fallen through the floor. So should the working man have any confidence that the, the pro-manufacturing policies that you want mm-hmm. are going to be pro-jobs? Yeah, look, there's evidence that they can be. And the, the issue with automation is that you know, manufacturing jobs held pretty steady and just aligned themselves with uh, business cycles during the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and, and most of the 90s, where they started to drop off was uh, when China entered the world trade system, um, and we lost a third of all manufacturing jobs. And there is a, there's not only a correlation, there's a causation there. Uh, they pick back up a little bit, and it shows, it shows me that we can be successful. And part of that is recovery from the recession. And, and yeah, what, what I have to ask, Tim, is that in, in this economy, do we have a shortage of $5 imported T-shirts, or do we have a shortage of high quality jobs, and do we have a shortage of getting skilled workers into the uh, in, into the labor force? There's strong evidence built on the otter work that a lot of these communities that that saw deindustrialization, there's a high percentage of folk, folks sitting out of the labor market because they're addicted to opioids uh, or they're on disability or others issues like that. And and trade was a factor in that. We we can manage automation. We always have, and we've always found jobs that way, even in manufacturing. But I go back to my first statement. You have to get the rules right. If we don't have reciprocity, if we don't demand reciprocity, if we don't say to China, we're against a state-led effort for you to dominate artificial intelligence, robotics, advanced vehicles, aerospace. Uh, I mean, you think about the number of jobs they support in the United States or could support, uh, and it, it should scare people. Now, why should that scare people? I'm a, I'm a free market guy, and I think if you told me that uh, Donald Trump or, you know, four or eight years from now, President Kamala Harris was going to launch a state-run 10-year plan to make sure that we that the government is going to make sure that we dominate artificial intelligence, I would go and uh, short the whole idea of artificial intelligence if I could. I think that government central planning tends to be uh, an ineffective thing and that if China wants to do it, we should argue against it because it's bad, but that it'll be, why should I be scared of China's ability to do that? Don't I have to have some faith in the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government in, in order to be worried about that? I don't want you to have faith in the Chinese <laughs> yeah. government or the Chinese so, Communist but, but Party. But why are you afraid But what I'm saying is the scale matters with respect to China, and that's why we have to pay attention to it. We also have to pay attention to it because at, at, at a minimum, China is a strategic competitor. 
Um, I don't see that changing. Um, and, and no amount of wishful thinking will change that. And so do you want China effectively writing the rules of artificial intelligence, robotics? Do you want them dominating aerospace platforms uh, in a way? I, that worries me from a security perspective. It worries me from a potential jobs perspective. The answer is not to have the government step in and have a $10 billion plan to do this, uh, but we can have smart public-private partnerships uh, through the tax code, through other mechanisms, we can, uh, through workforce, we can find ways to engage with this. But all of those efforts are undercut if there's not a level playing field. And because you said rules of robotics, we're now going to shift to the Isaac Asimov section of this. <laughs> uh, Clark, do you, uh, do you worry about China for these uh, national security purposes, even aside from trade issues? You wouldn't, might it be bad if, if they're you know, dominating aerospace and, and AI rules? So, so there are a couple things here. I think that it's interesting. I see all these people, um, maybe like Laura Ingram, she's on TV, who's just this uh, avowed capitalist, but has so much faith in, in the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, it, it, there's something sort of weird about that, right? That like if you, if you actually believe what you're saying you believe, which is freedom and free markets will win out in the long run, have faith in the American system as opposed to, to their system. Now, I, I do have concerns about the, the sort of national security issue. What I will say, though, is the Trump administration seems to be taking their eye off the ball right now. And, and what I mean by that is they want, the, the Chinese government wants to focus all of our attention on things like auto and, and uh, uh, I guess, grains and, and agriculture products. But the real fight is over sort of IP because that's as part of their long-term strategy. And again, I think that the WTO is the proper place to litigate that. And we should be really aggressive about that, but do it within the confines of, of the WTO, the, the structure that we put in place. Neil, specifically, how would you address China? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think we need to increase um, U.S. exports. We only one percent of our thirty million businesses are exporters, and the majority are exporting just to Canada and and Mexico. Um, so I think we need to work to increase that. That's a very important point. But I think with China, um, I think we have to take a hard line. I mean, it goes against some of my free trade principles and free market principles. But quite frankly, I don't think the the WTO is is the place to do that. I think we have to really take an aggressive stand with them on the foreign policy side. I think Trump was going down the right road. I think With the tariffs. Yeah, by saying and being aggressive and saying, we aren't going to take it anymore. And that's Donald Trump's mantra, isn't it? It's America first. We aren't going to take it anymore. We're tired of you dumping steel. We're tired of you stealing our intellectual property. We're tired of you trying to scare us with our good ally in Taiwan with your military bluster and flying over and doing military exercises. We're, not gonna, we're, we're the United States of America. We're the strongest economy in the world by far. We generate most of the IP in the world today. We have the strongest military by far. Why are we letting China dictate to us what we should be doing foreign policy-wide, trade-wise, economically-wise? Well, so then, uh, yeah, Tori, the, what about that argument for sort of a trade war is driving a tough bargain. If we want China to build down its state-owned enterprises to stop doing these, you know, five-year plans that are sort of uh, strategically aggressive, um, what, uh, why not say, okay, we're going to put some tariffs on the stuff that you're importing, and then we'll take them down if you play ball and free up your markets? Well, I mean, here's the thing. If tariffs don't work, spoiler alert, 
Um, that's the news of the day. There's your headline. Tariffs don't work. Um, now, Clark has a great point, like I've said before, going to the WTO. Another recommendation the Heritage Foundation has for dealing with um, legitimate intellectual property theft with China is to sanction individuals and companies who either steal IP from the United States or are known to be using known stolen intellectual property. Um, that can be done by businesses and maybe even chambers working with the Department of Commerce, and then those that information being given to the Department of Treasury and, and those entities being sanctioned. There are practical ways to actually go at the problem with a scalpel instead of with a nuclear missile. So say more about what you mean when you say tariffs don't work, because I, th I thought the free trade argument was that tariffs have this big negative impact on the economy by driving up the prices on imported goods. If they're driving up the prices on imported goods, that seems that it's, it's working and it's making more room for domestic manufacturers. It's not the case. So if you think about it, think about it in this case, if you are increasing the price of, say, steel and aluminum for the you know, 7 million Americans who are employed in those industries, who are the steel workers going to have to sell to? If, you're, if you are affecting all the jobs in the using industries. So increasing the prices, and the point of a, of a tariff is to increase prices, increasing the prices is not going to stimulate more you know, growth in, in jobs in manufacturing in the United States. It's actually going to hinder it. It's going to cripple it from actually being competitive in the world market when U.S. prices are higher than world prices. Uh, I, look, I wish I were Wilbur Ross sitting here with the soup can <laughs> oh, and, the, and the tall boy <laughs> because he made the right point, which is the, the economic impact of the tariffs to the overall U.S. economy is nominal. The, the specific impact that it can have Do you for want to the tell that to the manufacturers in Michigan and Ohio you know what? and Fa Indiana? Fabricated metals, the, the employment has continued to go up. The forward-looking indicators are good. There will be horror stories. No doubt they will be. But Millions? They should have seen this coming since June of 2016 when Donald Trump said, I'm going to do Section 232 and said, how can I align my supply chain? to plan for this eventuality. That's well, kind of, to me, that's a business People like us in 2016 were saying so, that Donald Trump wasn't going to be president. Yeah, so, well, Clark. Yeah, just, just real quick. Look, like, if you can isolate the tariffs on just steel and aluminum, I, I, I take that at face value that it's, it's a small portion to the overall economy. The problem with these things is they start to spiral out of control, right? And, and you get this tit-for-tat back and forth, and we saw that. It, trade tensions started to ratchet up. And so that's where you can get you know, bring in a lot of unrelated industries, uh, and this thing can start to, to, to expand. And so I, I think that uh, that's a little disingenuous to say, well, it's just a tiny part. It has the potential to, to, to really ratchet out of control. And we're already seeing that. Well, I think we are talking about a scalpel. You said use a scalpel, right? We're not saying tariffs on the entire world or on Well, the Section word. 232 well, is tariffs well, on yeah, the entire well, world. But I'm saying we're, let's, focus, let's focus on the one particular problem here, the one country that's causing the problem. I not, think we not, agree every, on that. not every country out there. And I agree that we should go back into TPB. We should really revisit that. And get, get All right. That. We have about two minutes left, so I just want sort of a, a quick comment whether it's forward looking, what you think. Uh, the Trump administration should do, or the most important thing that w was uh, left out. So let's start down with you. Scott. Well, I can't ask the president to be consistent with the tweet, so I'm going <laughs> to uh, not. That would be helpful to certainty. But but Clark mentioned South Carolina and FDI. There's a reason why car companies started pr started producing in the United States. It's because we have a 25% tariff on imported trucks, and it's because Reagan threatened the Japanese and said, if you don't start making more. Here, we're going to shut you out of our market. And so uh, an aggressive trade posture can work. It has to be smart. 
it, it can't be permanent, uh, but it has to be part of the arsenal you're willing to, to use if you want to be competitive in this marketplace, particularly with the massive amount of state-led capitalism in China. Thank you. Clerk. Um, I, I think that we need to really get serious about NAFTA and, and sort of the United States needs to back down from some of its re- unreasonable demands. NAFTA has been a great success. I disagree with, with some of the things that have been said, but, but overall NAFTA has been pretty good. And the, at this point, it's the United States taking a really ridiculous posture on things like sunset, a $16 minimum wage in the automotive industry. Um, so so I, I think NAFTA is a big deal for our economy, and I think we need to get it right. First of all, I think uh, the Trump administration should foster closer ties with Taiwan to show China that they can't push us around and we can establish a closer relationship with whoever we like. But second of all, I think, uh, again, the administration needs to decide whether they're just going to do bilateral trade agreements or they are going to do multilateral agreements too, because I think they're going back and forth. Um, You know, should we go back into TPP or not? Should we just focus on China? What are we doing with NAFTA? I would, I would try to get that message right, and I would focus on that. Yeah, well, thanks for giving me the last word. <laughs> um, so, you know, for me, it's, I'm, I'm a native Michigander, right? My dad works in the auto industry, so I come at this from a really personal perspective of understanding what people are really going through. And for me, it is about who is picking the winners and losers in the economy. Is it the government picking the winners and losers? I know some folks may say that it's China picking the winners and losers in the United States. But is, is the U.S. government picking who's winning and who's losing? Or is the market and our business owners who work hard picking who's winning and who's losing? And things like tariffs and, um, and other sorts of, of mechanisms that are hindering the ability of American businesses to just do their job um, that's not going to get us moving forward. So trade policy needs to be focused on what makes it best, what makes it easier for Americans to buy and sell around the world. Now, it seems like we did not solve the trade debate, but I think we had a very good discussion here. So everybody, please thank our panelists. Also, thank you to the Heritage Foundation for hosting us. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you guys all for coming. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Well said, sorry. Appreciate it. That was great. Yep, absolutely. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks.